Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. As you might have noticed, the length of this episode is quite abnormal compared to our common format. This is because we had an amazing conversation with Agustin McKinley from Cantox. Agustin is a senior financial writer at Cantox, a former lecturer and a fellow podcaster. He is a fount of knowledge, particularly when it comes to currency management, foreign exchange risk management, FX trading, and so on. Hussam and I couldn't stop asking him questions, and we feel how passionate Agustin is when we listen to him. In the episode of today, expect to learn what is currency management, what are the instruments used in currency management, what are the main actors when it comes to that endeavor, what is the typical life cycle of a foreign exchange trade, so an FX trade. All this highlighted with a use case based on a client from Contox. And much, much more. This very long format is a bit of a test. Please let us know if you like it and would like more of this. How? You can easily reach out to us on LinkedIn, where we are very, very active lately. Just search for Corporate Treasury 101 and that will be us. Also, if you could share the episode, submit a review on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the podcast, this would mean the world to us, Hussam and I, and would help the podcast a lot. With all that being said, please welcome Agustin McKinley. Hey, Augustine. Thanks a lot for joining the podcast. And can we maybe begin with you introducing yourself and explain us what you do? Well, hey there. It's great to be here. My name is Augustine McKinley. I'm the senior financial writer at Cantox and the host of CurrencyCast. Uh, as both a financial writer and a creator of a podcast, well, I, my, my work involves writing reports and different pieces of, of research. And, well, I'm proud to say that uh, we have uh, here uh, treasurers guided through the process of currency management in all of the different aspects. And I'm really excited to be here today to, to talk about all of this. Very excited as well. And I already heard quite some terms that I can't wait to break down. Um, but maybe before diving into this, can you explain us what Cantox does? Right. Look, Cantox is creating a new software category. We call it currency management automation. We're going to discuss, of course, all of these topics, but it involves in providing the treasuries with mostly automated tools, software tools to guide them through the entire process of currency management. And we can break down that process in what we call three phases, a retrace phase. We're going to, of course, uh, discuss that where it starts with using a foreign exchange rate to set the price of the goods that you sell. If, for example, you can sell them in overseas markets, obviously that is going to involve a currency rate, but you can sell it in domestic markets if there are uh, important components that also is going to involve a currency rate. Then there's the process of the trade phase itself that involves executing what is uh, in our case, forward our currency transactions. And of course, we're going to 
discuss them in more detail on the way to the Liverpool straight phase that involves payments and, and collections in foreign currencies. Now, we'd like to emphasize that this is a, an end-to-end approach. And beyond all the technicalities, uh, Hussam and Guillaume, what we aim here is to provide answers for concrete business problems, right? And so, for example, it's interesting that the Chinese have, when they uh, express risk, they use two characters, danger and opportunity, right? And yes, of course, there are some aspects of, of danger in currency management. We want to emphasize the aspect of opportunities, right? We want to provide treasure with tools to become more strategic, to take advantage of the opportunities that, that currencies bring. And we call that embracing currencies very optimistically. Love the approach. So I think you also guys have a podcast, right? Um, I definitely want to bring down everything, quite some actuality and news to cover as well. But uh, beginning with the Currency Cast podcast, can you walk us through what you do there and what it is about? That's right. We started the Currency Cast uh, podcast back in 2022 as a way to create awareness about that category that we call currency management automation. And well, it, it involves a, a masterclass that I'm uh, grateful uh, to them for calling it that way. So uh, usually we present in a relatively short episode, one or, or one element of all of that so set of complex steps that are included in, in currency management. And so that's, uh, that's what we do in currency cast and, and we are very excited to continue with, with it, uh, for the foreseeable future. Very cool. Very cool. Augustine, thank you so much for coming on. So let's, let's get into the nitty gritty, Augustine. So you mentioned a few times currency management. Could you define currency management as seen by Cantogs? Right. Yes. Excellent question. Well, look, currency management is the process of, of, using foreign currencies in commercial and also financial operations. Commercial operations, as I just mentioned, right? If you're going to, to sell in overseas markets, in Canadian dollars, in Thai baht, in Brazilian reais, then exchange rates and currencies are going to be involved. Or if you sell in domestic markets, but say you're selling British pounds, Furniture that you imported from China is going to involve the Chinese currency, British pound. The, the entire process starts with pricing, but as I said, there is also the risk management. A part of, of all this, it's not the only, it's the only, not the only one, right? People tend to put the, uh, uh, to give more importance to that risk management, which is, of course, very important, but it's not the only one. There's going to be also the process of payments and collections in, in foreign currencies. And all of that uh, must be included in what we call currency management. Do you define those differently between risk management and currency management, Augustine? Well, yes. As I said, pricing with an FX rate is a key component in currency market. In currency management, we've got to see some, some examples, I think, a little bit later on. And the the process of risk management also is usually understood as, as executing hedges. And of course, 
we need to define what that means. But at Cantos, we have a maybe a, a broader view of, of all that process. So, for example, there are ways to manage risk, the underlying risk in currencies without executing hedges. And all of that is going to require a slightly, maybe different approach that, that the one that is emphasized, right? Mostly executing those, those uh, currency hedges. And so it involves more, uh, more processes, more possibilities. In fact, it's a world of opportunity that opens up for treasures again to act more as strategic players within the company and allowing the, the firm to, yes, to take advantage of those, those currencies to maybe enhance the firm's competitive position. And why not securing budgeted profit margins and even perhaps making a contribution towards, well, enhancing the value of the firm. Why not? No, very clear. I'm looking forward to digging into that. I heard some words that uh, Guillaume and I and our listeners love, like hedging is, is a it's a hot topic for us on the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. So looking forward to touching that again. But before we get into that, could you give us some like examples of situations of where companies or corporates um, would use currency management exactly? Well, yes. Um, so say that, it, that we're dealing with a, a US-based company that uh, that has an order to to sell in say a hundred thousand uh, euros worth of goods, but the key thing is that the uh, the settlement of that commercial transaction, right? Because it's a commercial transaction, is going to be say in three months' time. But what's going to happen between the moment the transaction is agreed and the moment it's got to be settled? That is settled in cash, right? There's going to be a shift in the exchange rate. As we know, exchange rates change second by second, right? And so that is going to involve uh, a number of processes. And of course, not to depend on the type of, of companies, the type of pricing characteristics, or some phase dynamic prices that change over time. Some companies, on the other hand, would like to keep stable prices for say, an entire campaign or budget period, and others still decide to keep steady prices for as long as possible. So they're going to create different type of situations that we're going to re require or different types of currency management. I wanted to dig into the purposes of currency management. It's basically to enable international trade, right? As long as you have to deal with other territories, countries that have different currencies, not only will you need to exchange your own currency against or with the other one, but also hedge yourself against certain aspect of currency risk management, as you mentioned earlier. Pretty clear. Um, what are the instruments typically that we find in currency management and then currency risk management, Mark? Right. Well, Gil, um, I would add to what you just said that, yes, we are used to uh, think of currency management in terms of commercial uh, transactions, right? Mostly buying and selling goods and services and that you're perfectly uh, so right to emphasize that but there's the there could be a, a say a financial type of exposure to currency risk which is so for example a company makes a loan to subsidiary in a foreign currency and there's not a commercial type of transaction but it's going to 
to involve currency risk as well. Right? So there's commercial type of exposure and perhaps a more financial type of exposure. By the way, it's very exciting that right now we're starting to to um, to uh, get clients from the fintech space, fintech companies that fund themselves in one currency and issue loans in another currency, which also creates tremendous uh, so opportunities for them and for us to help them manage those currencies and that currency risk. Now, with regards to the tools that, that are used in currency management, well, I think most important ones involve the spot market operations, forward markets operations, also options and why not uh, futures. Would you like to, to, to discuss those? Absolutely. Please, okay. let's dig into this. So what are the difference between uh, all of those instruments? How do you use them? And in which situations exactly? That's right. Look, a spot a transaction, as the name implies, is a transaction that is, uh, so for example, if I got to buy one currency uh, and paying in another one, that takes place, the settlement and the delivery take place on the spot, right? That's why it's called a spot market transaction. Now, it's not exactly on the spot. Why? Because usually it takes about two working days to be uh, to be settled, but mostly it's a spot market transaction. The delivery and payment take, take place almost immediately. In fact, for euro against the dollar, which is the most widely traded currency pair, it, it, it takes only one working day to be settled and delivered. There are, of course, other types of uh, foreign exchange transactions that uh, help you manage currency risk and currencies in general. And the most widely used uh, here uh, for us and in the world is so-called forward market uh, foreign exchange uh, transactions. And they also involve a currency that is going to be sold against another one or bought against another one. But the key difference is that settlement and payment do not take place on the spot. They're going to take place at a date in the future, right? That is that is agreed upon by both our participants. And that creates at least two important differences with a spot transaction. The moment, of course, time is involved, right? You uh, you may agree to, to have delivery and payment take place Two weeks' time, in a month's time, in six months, in one year. But the minute time is involved, interest rates are also involved. And that, uh, that is going to add some complexity to, uh, to the issue. Also, you need to take the, your credit worthiness into consideration, right? An American president said, trust, but verify, right? In order for you to, to be able to execute such a forward a transaction, you need to make a good faith deposit, right? Call it a collateral amount that needs or cash that needs to be set aside in order to to avoid a bad surprises. Makes a lot of sense. I like that the, the finance people have quite an understandable jargon, right? Spots is because it happened on the spot. Forward, you look forward to transaction, makes a lot of sense. You mentioned the, a term that I would like to break down a bit, um, like, which is currency pair. What's, I think it's quite a simple one, but can you break it down for us, please? 
That's right. The, I, I mentioned, I think, the most widely used currency pair is the euro and the dollar. Right? Mm-hmm. If it's expressed in, uh, you, you see, you will see it written as EUR USD. What does that mean? It means the amount of US dollars or one euro. That's a currency pair. Could be expressed uh, the other way around, right? Of course, uh, the amount of euros for one US dollar. It's just a convention. It's exactly the same, but these are the, the, the conventions and the most widely uh, used currency pairs involve, of course, as I said, the euro and the dollar, but also the, the euro against the British pound, the uh, dollar against the Japanese yen, and and more and more, of course, as we, we're, we're reading the news, we're seeing what's going on with China, little by little, the Chinese currency is gaining momentum, meaning that currency pairs involving the Chinese currencies are also going to be more widely used going forward. Okay, so currency pair just simply refers to two different currencies at which you would look for a spot rate, a forward rate, or you just look at what is the exchange rate between those two in the time. That's absolutely the case, yes. Makes a lot of sense. And um, I guess, and can you, that's super clear, that we have a term that we hear sometimes, which is trading currencies uh, when it comes to currency management. Can you explain us what that means exactly? Well, yes. Trading currencies, it involves, of course, buying and selling one currency against another. And maybe uh, an example will will help us see that. So let's say that um, you're a Norwegian company and you wish to buy, uh, for example, 10 million US dollars. Now, you're going to go to a foreign exchange dealer that is going to show you two, not one, but two currency rates. Uh, it's got to show, so for example, 8.55 Norwegian a kron per dollar and 8.5530 Norwegian uh, krones for one dollar. So what's going to happen here is that at any time, there's going to be people interested in buying dollars and in selling dollars. But here, if you're going to buy dollars uh, in this case, you've got to pay 8.5530 no return. And if you, another company wants to sell those $10 million, it's got to get paid 8.55. The difference is, of course, those are in a $10 million amount, it, it, it equals 30,000 no return. From. That's how dealers make money. That's how currency trading takes place. Could be on a spot basis or on a forward basis. Now, we are at Cantos a little bit keen to not to overemphasize the term trading. Of course, it is used, right? And we do it all the time, but it has maybe a, a speculative connotation, right? Of retail traders buying and selling. And we like to think of Currency management as the opposite of speculation, right? Yes, of course, it's, it is going to involve uh, um, that trade, but, but which we're keen not to overemphasize that aspect. It's just one in 
the chain of events that, or, or the, the workflow, right, that starts from, from pricing and, and then to payment. Super clear, Augustine. Thank you so much. Um, there's a couple more uh, financial instruments that we had covered before in Corporate Treasury 101. Um, so we, we talked about spots and forwards, but we also have mentioned things like swaps and options. Are those also used in currency management? And if so, how? Yes, absolutely. Because I'm, they're, they're used, uh, swaps and options are widely used. There's another one. Just let's briefly uh, break them uh, down all one by one. So a swap transaction is a transaction in which you buy and sell the same amount of a currency against another, but with different value dates. What's a value date is the moment in time that a transaction is going to be settled. We saw that in you know, spot market transactions, that is on the spot forward a transaction that takes place at a, at a date in the future. So swaps are very useful. So for example, if you have a forward transaction in place, say to buy a million euros against, a million dollars against euros, but you realize that you need in two days, say a hundred thousand dollars. Well, what you could do is here execute a swap transaction whereby there is what is called a near leg in which you buy the $100,000 that you need for settlement in two days. And at the same time, you sell those $100,000 with the value date of the original position. And look at what, what you achieve. You're going to adjust your forward transaction right to the needs of the commercial hedging operation. And at the same time, you're going to have the cash at your disposal that you're going to need in, in, in two days' time. Very, very useful type of transaction here, of course. There's, good, there's going to be a foreign exchange gain and loss depending on the change in the exchange rate. But still, it's a very, very useful type of operations. And, um, and we do that all the time. Options, on the other hand, it's, a, it's an altogether different animal, right? Yeah. When, um, when you have the option to buy one currency against another, well, as the name indicates, right, you, you, can, uh, you, can, you have the option to decide whether to go ahead or not with that transaction. That's going to depend on, obviously, on the exchange rates on the day of the settlement. Is it too good to be true? Well, yes, in a sense it is. So that's why option buyers need to pay uh, what is called a premium to options. So it's a little bit like in a, a regular insurance policy. You have uh, the right to, to make a choice, but against that choice, you needed to uh, come up with, with a premium, a payment, right? Immediately uh, done. So. Maybe there's an issue here with options that we don't really, we don't do at, uh, at Captoff. We don't work with options and it's the pricing of that premium, right? Of that right to decide whether or not to buy or sell. Well, it, it, it can be the result of complex mathematical calculations that sometimes 
in situations where um, there is more complexities involved, maybe it's not as transparent as forward uh, our contracts are. So that's why we tend well, well we don't use them uh, at Capitals. We are we like to say uh, that well we are we think forward, right? We we use forwards uh, mostly and course and and swap transactions. So is a, a swap is like if you had a forward already in place, but for some reason you need it earlier. So it's kind of like an emergency options contract. If you knew you needed it before, perhaps, or you had a higher risk of needing it before, you might have taken an option and paid for the premium. But a swap, would a swap then be more expensive than just getting an option every time? Or No, no. Well, why would you pick yeah. one over the other? Well, you're absolutely absolutely right to say that that the the swap allows you to to adjust your position and it's so useful in that case. Now we call that to draw on a forward, right? To yeah. use the the cash that you need. Why is it because uh, I'm so useful? It's because what you see on te in textbooks is, and of course, the the settlement date of a commercial transaction by miracle exactly matches the settlement date of your corresponding forward transaction. Maybe we'll, we'll discuss that in more detail. Uh, but in real life, it's not the case, right? This, these adjustments need to be, to be executed. It's not always the case that the settlement of your commercial transaction exactly match the value date of your forward transaction. Now, the reason why we prefer swaps and, and forwards is most, mostly because of transparency. There is no, uh, the, the, the price is completely transparent. You can see that on Bloomberg, on Thomson Reuters, the information is widely available, whereas options are more of a uh, could be right, depending on their complexity, uh, involve a little bit less uh, less transparency than than we would like at least for our clients. Very, very, very clear. And um, there's one word you haven't used yet, Augustine, that comes up a lot in treasury, which is risk appetite. And uh, my my journey into learning about treasury, uh, Guillaume has taught me a lot that uh, that treasurers uh, are always thinking about risk. So. How does that play into all of this? Right. Look, it's, it's of course, a, a fantastic uh, point there. Risk appetite is, well, is the reflection of a treasurer's view on, on, the, uh, on the underlying risk in, in, in currency management. We tend, as I think I, I, I well, yes, I mentioned a couple of minutes before, to, Avoid any type of speculation. That's really, really one key message that we always uh, so share with treasurers, CFOs, if needed with CEOs, board of management, uh, board of directors. No, no speculation is, in our view, the best. So the best way to uh, to manage currencies, and that is going to involve, of course. The, as I think you are hinting at that, right? Your own views, markets, well, whether they're 
headed to is the exchange rate going to, uh, to go up or down. But that is going also to involve perhaps your own biases, right? And there's lots of those psychological biases that the treasurers have, that you have, that I have. And one way to deal with those, those biases, right, is with, with automated tools that, that is, are going to allow you to exclude as much as possible any possibility of, of engaging in speculation, right? That's, and that's why we, we use that term well, and that concept of automation to, to deal with that, that potential risk. I guess we, we really like to go down the rabbit hole. And so you mentioned two things here, the, the commercial transactions that may happen at a, at a different moment that it was foreseen and the risk appetite. From what I understand on the, the different instruments you describe, would you rather uh, use like not flexible instruments and probably therefore a bit cheaper for payments on over which you have total control and more flexible instruments for collections Looking back to those swaps, because those collections can arrive at a different time than it was initially planned, right? So is there such a thing in terms of strategy? And we're going to come to it, but hedging strategies or those that have nothing to do with it? Well, hedging strategies is a big one. We tend to, to use the term hedging programs at Cantox, but yes, yeah, yeah, and those hedging programs are going to go, as I said, uh, at, at, so are going to include the all the phases, and the phases include payments and, and collections as well. But note, uh, Guillaume, that forwards and swaps, so swaps could involve spot and forward transactions, they could involve two forward transactions. And um, so they're, in our mind, is roughly the, the same instrument uh, that, that we're talking about, only with different value days. So... It's the one that we prefer. It's the one that we uh, tell companies to use. It's the most widely used of all by far, by the way, in, in terms of, of currency management. So we don't see there enormous differences in payments and collections. We all always use spot payments, forwards, and of course, those uh, swap transactions. Very clear, Augustine. Thank you so much. Can you take us further then into... As I mentioned at the start, our favorite topic, which is hedging and these hedging programs. So when we talked about hedging on Corporate Treasury 101, when Kim first explained it to me, talked about currency hedge, FX hedging and interest rate hedging. So focusing on the currency uh, or the FX hedging specifically, what are those hedging programs? And can you give us like examples from the real world? That's right. Well, look. Let, let's explain, if you will, a uh, 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 hedge here relatively in, sim in relatively simple terms. A hedge is to go back to that example of a U.S.-based company that has a um, so a real uh, um, on a sale in of a hundred thousand uh, euros, but the settlement is going to take place in three months' time. What you do is to hedge that transaction. That is to protect against the risk in that transaction, right? transactional FX risk. But at the same moment, same date that you, uh, that that operation was closed or was agreed upon, what you're going to do is you're going to sell the same amount of euros in the forward markets. With what value date? With a value date that, if possible, matches the date of the settlement of the commercial transaction. And 
Look at the magic that is going to operate here. What happens on the on the date of the settlement of the two transactions? Because there's a commercial one, there's a financial one that you're going to do with with the bank. Right? You're going to get paid your a hundred thousand euros on the commercial transaction, and you're going to wire that amount to the bank. Right? Against that amount, the bank is going to deliver your the value of uh, the corresponding value in US dollars. Note that that value was agreed upon as the transaction was also agreed upon. So there is no transactional currency risk other than the impact of interest rate differentials that we may discuss on a little bit later on. But also note that that allows us to define a hedge with more precision. The hedge is in fact, it is the creation of a, or or the, taking a financial position in a so-called derivative instrument, in this case, a forward currency contract, whose value is going to shift in exactly the opposite direction as the value of the commercial operation. So, for example, in this case, if at settlement, the exchange rate between the euro and the dollar goes down, right? There, uh, from a commercial point of view, you've got to get a what is called a, an FX loss, right? The commercial transaction, it, when translated back into dollars, is going to uh, uh, be of a lower value. But what happens when the value of your financial transaction there is going to go up in value because you sold it at a higher price? So, is an offsetting impact that defines the precision of a hedge. Now, there are, of course, different, people call them strategies, or rather use the, the term programs, and mostly what they involve are, well, different types of programs according to the pricing characteristics of your business. Not, it's not the same if you're facing what we call dynamic prices or prices that are updated all the time, like in the travel or in the travel space, right? OTAs, online travel agencies are going to face. So prices that are second by second and they change all the time. Or a situation in which you wish to keep, say, a steady price, a fixed price on a catalog for one year. Say, or one budget period, or one campaign period, right? Could be uh, less or more than one year. And you have the ability to well, to reset your prices at the onset of a new campaign. Still, another possibility is those firms that, perhaps for competitive pressures, need to keep their prices steady for more than uh, one or two campaigns. In fact, for as long as possible. One, it's got to call for different hedging programs, and that's where things get, of course, very, very exciting. Can you, in terms of stealing of hedging strategies, is there such a thing as hedging only a proportion of your commercial transaction? And by this, I mean, so the example you mentioned with the 100,000 USDs, could you hedge or like contract with the bank for what? Only for 50K, for instance, because of this pricing incentive that you don't want to pay too much for the cost of hedging, but you also want to have a little bit of certainty. Is there such a thing or th that doesn't exist? 
Well, Guillaume, this you just described the process of protecting a budget rate, right? That's mm -hmm. that's what happens in in budget. So maybe budget edging is not the correct expression, but when you want to protect the the entire budget for one year, you're going to do exactly as you're you're implying. You're not likely, or at least we don't advise companies to take right at the start of the budget period, a hedge, right, for the entire budgeted forecasted amount. Why? Because it's going to create forecasting risk, right? Here, what if COVID hits you in the midst of the of the budget period, right? You will end up in this case being what is called overhead. You you will have a large financial transaction, but your, the size or the value of your commercial transaction might be, in this case, on lower due to COVID or whatever, the economic crisis, etc. And that's exactly what, what we tell companies to do as they are going to, um, to undertake a program to hedge their budgeted exposure. Now, very important that, um, because here, this is a fantastic example of effects very much for citing it because it, it leads to the difference that we see in currency risk management and hedging. Let me, let me uh, explain this. So say that as just as you imply, you don't want to hedge the whole of the expected or, or forecasted budgeted exposure. But say maybe 20% of it or 40% right at the start. That's a a prudent way to uh, to deal with things, and it's got to uh, to reflect your degree of forecasting accuracy, right? But you don't want either, neither, so either to have the rest of the exposure completely left a possible fluctuations in currency. But what is that we advise companies to do then? Then, and we execute so our automated hedging programs. Well, then is to said for the remaining part of the budgeted exposure, what is called conditional effects orders. I'm sure you've heard about conditional effects orders. They include so-called stop-loss orders and take-profit orders. In this case, what we're going to tell management is, look, for the remaining exposure that you didn't want, perhaps for very good reasons, to hedge 100% right at the start. Let's put in conditional FX orders. How do we calculate them? Well, in such a way that, say that you're going to divide the remaining exposure in three thirds, right? And so you've got to put three stop loss orders in place, right? such that if they are executed, if the market moves, not in your favor, right? If so, there is a, say a worst case scenario in currency markets. The average of these three stop loss order exactly matches your budget rate, budget rate that you used in setting prices. So that's one way. You see, um, uh, one way in which currency risk matters. Because we're managing risk here, right? not letting the company so have 
unmanaged, unmanaged exposure to currency risk. But we're not a necessarily executing measures. We are uh, so monitoring markets, making sure that you're still actively managing your exposure to currency risk, but maybe not executing hedges all the time, but could be also for interest rate reasons, pretty expensive. Oh, uh, and now I get enthusiastic about this because look at what's going to happen there. You're going to get, as a treasurer, right, to the extent that this stop-loss order, unexecuted, because markets maybe are not very volatile, perhaps they move in your favor. So, of course, uh, you could put also, take profit orders, right, to take advantage of favorable moves. But to the extent that your stop-loss orders are not executed, you gain time. And time, as I'm sure you, you've uh, uh, seen that in many talks with treasurers and with people in tre time is the most precious asset for the treasury team. This is going to give them the possibility to do lots of things. One thing is, of course, to update, to fine-tune, to improve their cash flow forecast. So as they do that, and they do that with the help of information that comes from real world. It's not just forecast. Now they got to be able to see uh, what's going on in the economy, in the business, sales, in their purchases, and they're going to fine-tune their forecast. Now, as you fine-tune your forecast to the upside or to the downside, you automatically adjust the level and the size of those conditions. So that you make sure that the process improves as time goes by. Note also, and again, uh, so display my enthusiasm here. Note that also as time goes by, you might discover or find what is called netting opportunities. I'm sure we'll discuss that a little bit more, but netting opportunities is, hey, why would I execute a hedge if maybe a subsidiary has in a, a, a trade in the opposite direction? And even more to the point, but that involves a, a pretty technical point that is perhaps left uh, best left for uh, a little bit later on. There is the interest rate impact here. If interest rates are not in your favor, let's discuss that uh, in a couple of minutes, but here, Delaying that hedge execution with the help of conditional orders is going to allow you to lower, to lessen the impact of those unfavorable interest rates. So lots of things are there to do, as, as you can see, depending on the, the type of, of strategy or program that you wish to implement. Now that, that, that's very apparent. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, there's so many different strategies you can put in place. Um, and you've taken us through lots of them. I'm sure there's way more. Um, does it? You you mentioned earlier about online travel agencies and how they um, have, you know, a certain need because of the environment that they're in. That raises the question of: Do industries have different strategies that are very common to them? Largely around, like you mentioned, online travel agencies would be making transactions in seconds uh, in different currencies where 
factory, which is making one big bulk order of a certain raw material uh, every month, would have perhaps a different um, strategy in place. So how does it vary by industry? And what are perhaps the extreme cases on each yes. side? Yes, absolutely. Um, so a great point there. Uh, yes, it's the, I, in our view, the main point that that calls for different type of strategies or programs is we call it the pricing parameters of the firm. But pricing parameters might be a little bit uh, confusing, so let's call it the pricing characteristics of the firm. Do you face dynamic prices like the OTA, right? Or do you do you keep your prices steady for one campaign, right? Or do you keep your prices so as steady as possible for as long as possible? That's the the key element. Another element is the, the difference in interest rates, are, as we're going to explain a little bit later. But to go back to the example of the of the travel sector, this is a fantastic one. It's perhaps the extreme one, right? In terms of dynamic prices. Now, there's geolocation services, payment apps, uh, algorithms that track demand and supply changes in seconds. That has uh, turned the prices in travel um, incredibly dynamic. They change really literally, literally minute by minute. So it's very important, very difficult there, or almost dangerous to to take a budget hedging approach, such as the one I described a little bit earlier on, right? Because you would have the forecasting risk would be extremely uh, high, and you wouldn't you you would take perhaps too much too much risk. What we uh, do here is. We advise companies to apply what we call the micro-hedging program for those firm sales or purchase orders. You could, for example, buy hotel capacity in Thailand and sell packages in in Canada, right? So currency risk on the buy side, currency risk on sell side. It's going to involve many times small transactions, right? And it's going to involve perhaps many different currency pairs. So that's almost, or that is impossible to to manage manually. What you want here is to, what we call to aggregate those individual pieces of exposure. So that instead of executing a hedge for, say, a couple of thousand pounds or dollars, to have a little bit more of an aggregation and then only you would execute the hedge. Note that this requires all the time that you uh, recalculate the the value of that exposure with the new piece of, of information, new sales order or new purchase order that comes in. And it is absolutely impossible to do it manually. You really need here the help of, of software tools to, to handle all of that. Super clear. And so linking to those software tools, um, I can see them also in more generally the currency management world. Who are the main actors, actually? You mentioned, obviously, the, the corporates who are in need of FX deals, right, to, for, to cover their commercial transactions. Who else is, is out there? Our corporations are on the, by far the, say, the biggest users of currency management uh, solutions, both for the commercial type of exposure to currency risk, national type of exposure, and but you could, could also mention 
currency dealers that have a, a very useful function in finding all those buyers and sellers that allow you to create a lively market. And in that regard, by the way, Young, there's an interesting development. Well, it's not new now, but it's, uh, it has flourished in the past, say, uh, two or three years. And it's called, uh, we call them multi-dealer trading platforms. So it's just 360T. So what they enable you is to, to automate what we call the trade part, right? The execution of that forwards or spot or swap transactions. The traders now have the tool to automate all that uh, part of the process, right? The, the trimming phase itself, thanks to those platforms. By the way, those platforms will give you, uh, well, we have lots of features. One, is them, one of them is called best price execution, which is really interesting because it's, a, uh, it's quite an, an amazing science, right? When you see those currency rates fluctuating second by second, not only second by second, but also with the different banks that might have slightly different rates at which they buy and rates at which they sell. So the software uh, solutions there from those currency dealers or those multi-dealer training platforms automatically make sure if that's your, if you're interested in getting the best price, you will get it. Not always, uh, not everybody uh, wishes necessarily for the, the best price execution. For example, you would, if you're doing business with a bank in other parts of the company, so in raising capital, in, in managing other, other parts of risk, take uh, interest rate risk or commodity price risk or whatever, you might want to challenge your FX orders to that particular institution, but you have the choice to do that. It's a way to automate all that uh, trade. And of course, banks are the, are the other side, the very uh, big players here, because what a bank has is, well, we know that, right? Contact with anybody, a given amount of currency and others who want to sell that amount of currencies, of course, they do that in money market instruments, in whatever, and in, uh, in equities and in on a spot basis, on a forward basis, on an options basis. So banks are very important here, of course, as they have all those contacts that enable to create what we call liquidity, right? Meaning that you will have at all moments, 24 hours, seven, almost a, a price to, um, to execute your desired transaction. So these are the, the three big players here, the dealers that put the the banks and the corporates in contact, the uh, the corporates that use the um, currency markets for risk uh, for currency management purposes, and the banks. I can't I can't help myself but to, to ask then. I mean, we have a, a whole question on what those contacts do and the, the way you you guys work, but. Where does it sit in all these contacts? We have three main actors, corporates, FX dealers, and financial institutions. And therefore, my, for my curiosity, where those contacts fit into all this? Right. Look, what contacts offers is, as I said, a, a set of automated software solutions to handle the, uh, that end-to-end -end management. It starts with all the way from pricing and then... so channeling that uh, to the trade phase and and then the post-trade phase. 
we call that end-to-end because, because, and that's really, really important here. Some people argue for automation as a, as what is called discrete automation, meaning you, you solve one particular issue, but we really emphasize end-to-end automation, meaning integrate all the parts. To give me an example, if you are saving a few what's called pips, right? Fractions of, of those, of those, the difference between the, the price at which you sell and which you buy. You, you may save them by automating trade phase of the workflow. But what if you're not integrating the pre-trade phase? That involves the process of exposure collection that we might discuss, right? But if you don't have a proper integration between those two, what you save on, on trading costs you may lose on poorly managed uh, currency risk. So that's what we do. Now, those solutions are based on, on a technology that you want to go in, into that discussion. Well, it involves mostly APIs, right? Application programming interfaces, a fantastic piece of, of technology that enables us to provide those solutions. That was a great overview into the different aspects of currency management, currency risk management, et cetera. Moving forward, you, you started to touch on the typical life cycle of an FX deal. You mentioned a little bit about pre-trade and post-trade and whatnot. Could you take us through that journey? So what is a typical life cycle of an FX deal starting at pre-trade? Right. Yes, absolutely. Look, it's a, a, a great point because it's, it's not mentioned for you in textbooks, right? In, you pick a textbook on currency management and then you have it. By magic, the exposure is there. All you need to do is to execute a hedge. But in real life, things are, of course, a lot more complicated, right? The, what we call exposure is, for example, on that, that budget forecast could be a piece of exposure. But also a farm sales order for which no invoice has still been issued. Or it could be an invoice, right? Uh, or an accounts receivable or an accounts payable. So there are different types of, of exposure. And that's why we give a lot of attention to the process of that pre-trade phase of gathering that information, collecting about that, that exposure. If, if I mention forecasts and then firm, firm sales orders and then invoices, in real life, you will get that you will see that these pieces of information oftentimes are to be found in different company systems, right? Maybe spreadsheets, if it's about broadcasts, maybe on your enterprise resource planning or ERP, if it's about sales or purchase orders, maybe in your treasury management system, if it's about invoices, right? And you need all those systems to be able to say, to communicate, to talk to each other in order for you to be able to gather that information, that exposure to currency risk. Note also that maybe headquarters has a fine process in place, but maybe the some subsidiaries do not. So all of this needs and needs to be to be managed. And is it is absolutely uh, so key to have all in its entire, entirety, right? All of the exposure information 
be collected and in a timely manner as, as soon as possible if interest rates, especially if interest rates are in your favor. So it's a, that quit rate phase includes that process of exposure collection, but also what we call exposure validation. There must be exposure, I'm sorry, exposure processing that includes validation. Somebody has got to, there must be rules to, for somebody to validate, right, to confirm that a hedge has got to be executed. Or she will go back to, to uh, Guillaume's example of a loss straight at the start of the period, right? A very senior person in the organization must validate that trade because otherwise you could be in, in trouble. So processing the exposure involves rules to validate those trades and rules to aggregate also different uh, pieces of the exposure. So that's, in a nutshell, the pre-trade phase. We went then to trade phase. Mostly now it's done with those multi-dealer trading platforms. And then there's going to be what, what we call the post-trade phase, including accounting and, and of course, so all the process of reporting and analytics. If you can help me understand like what you mean by exposure in layman's terms, right? So is exposure gathering just sort of figuring out what the risks are for your company and whatever dealings you have coming into the future? It's kind of just for understanding where you might lose out due to external factors. Is that is that a good way to summarize it for Liam? Yes, yes it, it, it is, right? And it, it can be, that exposure can be, again, in the shape of a just a forecast, right? And mm -hmm. the, uh, it's typical for when budgeting takes place, it's a complicated process in which, uh, so purchasing managers, the, the, uh, the sales uh, teams are going to be involved, perhaps accountants, economists, lots of teams are going to, to come up with Excel spreadsheets in which all that information is so it's gathered. And once, once the, so the budget uh, period is underway, it is vitally important to have a, a strong, solid process to make those that, that calculation. Because, of course, if you want to manage the underlying currency risk, you need to know exactly how much to uh, to, to trade in, in forward markets. Right? But that exposure also could also be in the shape of firm sales orders. That's what happens at in the travel industry, right? We, we don't advise to here to to hedge your exposure based on forecasts, but rather on firm sales or purchase orders. Or it could be for firms that are interested in just the accounting side of risk management, namely to to avoid excess, say, variability in your in your profit and loss in your income statement, to hedge at the moment the invoices that are recognized in accounting terms. Or, or so, or, or issued. So there are different types of, of exposure to, to risk. Absolutely, no, very clear. And you mentioned earlier about netting your um, FX processes and, and instruments. Are you able to define that netting at the pre-trade phase or only afterwards? Very good point. Sometimes it's going to be it's got to be at the at the pre-trade phase, but it, again. Remember that 
textbooks tell a very different story than than reality. And you, you, especially when you have to deal with many subsidiaries that have different so processes in place. And, and but yes, of course, the effort must be very very clear from the beginning to have the best process in place to gather all that information. But netting could be as I think, Hussein, you're, you're um, deducting from what I said earlier, right? That when you delay heads execution with the help of conditional orders, then you're going to find, and that's a very good point, right? Indeed, you might have more time to spot to incorporate those netting opportunities, which could be very important, right? Because say that headquarters is planning to sell whatever millions in dollars with a given value date, and suddenly it turns out that one uh, subsidiary plans to buy the same amount of dollars with the same value date. Why execute two hedges, right? It would be costly, It would, and it would force you to, to set aside cash or remember the collateral requirements of good faith or payments that you do beforehand. So to do it twice, it's uh, so it would be very costly. And indeed, netting is about that. And it's a way, again, right, that we at Cantox emphasize so to understand currency risk management in this case, not only as just executing hedges, right? Oh, great. I, I think last point in, in the pre-trade phase is um, you need to get a rate given to you, right? So um, you mentioned earlier a little bit about competitive bidding or, or the different FX traders, like, What's the process of actually getting a rate for your FX transaction? Yes, uh, thanks, Kusan, uh, for reminding you of that because I, I had, so um, maybe I had not mentioned that point. It's a very important one. In, in fact, it's incredibly exciting one. Again, another case that you will not find on textbooks. Now, say that you are importing uh, furniture from China and you plan to sell that in the UK market, right? To your commercial team. The exchange rate between the pound and the uh, and the dollar or the Chinese currency, depending on whether uh, in China is the phrase not to be settled dollars, which is often the case, or in the local currency, right, becomes uh, a key element of all your business strategies. So it's absolutely vital to understand the process through which this uh, foreign exchange rate is obtained by the commercial team when they price the transaction. Again, easier said than done because there are many questions here. Where do you get that rate from? Do you get it from a website? Is it up to date? Do you get it from perhaps a central bank, as most central banks do publish uh, exchange rates? Or do you get it from Bloomberg or from, say, Thomson Reuters, a financial service? Now, perhaps you might want to, uh, something that we could also discuss, you might like to use the forward rate instead of the spot rate to determine your price in your local currency. I've, there are interesting uh, differences uh, here. And also, you need to define how often are you going to source that rate. It's got to be once a day and you say, give that to the, all the commercial team. Is it got to be once a day at three o'clock? But why at three o'clock and not at two o'clock? Or is it got to be uh, eight every week? Or you see, there are lots of, of possible way to, ways to, to do that. 
what we call a good ethics rate sourcing process is one in which the, the, the finance team, right? the, the, the treasury feeds, so to say, commercial teams with the ethics rates they need for pricing purposes. A rate could be, again, spot rate, or it could be the three-month forward rate or the six-month forward rate. It could include a markup, most likely higher rate or a lower rate, depending on your client's size. A, a good process will, uh, will provide the commercial team with all the rates they need, spot basis, forward basis, with the markups per client set, per currency pair they desire, right? And that's, if it's done on a real-time basis, so much the better. It's going to allow the team to be a lot more competitive in terms of pricing. And look at what, what you will, will be achieving here, something that is more and more discussed now in, in business is you're going to remove those silos, right? That, that you have when the treasury team acts in isolation with respect to other teams. In this case, the, the commercial team, right? But what if you uh, allow them to cooperate? What if the process of sourcing the rate is exactly the way to remove those silos, that separation that is causing Oh, so much trouble. Now, there's a, an incredibly uh, uh, so exciting document or book, I, I, I should say, by consultants at Kinsey. They are calling for, if you can believe it, right, for $8 trillion in revenue growth well, between now and the end of the decade. And it's got to go for those who are capable of removing those sides and, and enhance their competitiveness. Mac, you, you sometimes make treasury sound like poesy. I, I really love it. Um, that <laughs> that's perfect. We so we covered quite extensively uh, the pre-trade phase, right? What about the actual trade phase? How does a trade happen in the real life? Right. Look, once again, to go back to the the example of a of the US-based company that has costs in dollars and it's called the so the, the functional currency, the currency in which they have their costs in, the currency in which they present their financial statements, and they have a so a, a sale in a, a planned sale in in euros, right? And ideally, and it, it it happens all the time. Or the trade phase will so the at the on the same date in which you're you're closing that transaction that. Transaction is agreed upon. You are going to also sell the corresponding amount with a bank or with a bank, but through most likely a multi-dealer trading platform with a value date that is set to coincide with the settlement of the commercial transaction. So here, the, uh, in the best case scenario, payments are not going to be much of an issue here because the cash that you receive from your commercial transaction is going to be used to settle your commercial transaction, your, your financial transaction. Remember that you had an agreement. Uh, we say an agreement, it's a contractual agreement. It's on the contract law. So it's, you must execute, you must so comply with that agreement. You must so deliver those uh, 100,000 euros to the bank in exchange for which you will receive 
low, low stars. And that's, that's an ideally executed uh, payments process. But as I think we mentioned, right, sometimes these moments are not going to coincide. The cash flow moments of the commercial transaction might not exactly coincide with the process of, of sorry, with a validate of the financial transaction. That's why you need to, uh, to have swaps in place. Now, swap execution, by the way, uh, Guillaume, uh, really interesting here because it could be a, when manually executed, very time consuming and uh, resource intensive. And, it, it's, um, and you can make mistakes, right? It's really the possibility of fraud or, or unethical behavior. So to the extent of possible, all of that process needs to be automated. And that's why also one feature that we include in, in currency management automation solutions. We definitely want to dig into this. Um, maybe just to close the loop before. So pre-trade, pretty clear. Uh, the actual trade we just covered. What happens then after the trade? I believe there are quite some steps, right? Um, so what happens once the trade is done? And what type of reporting, including automation that you mentioned, can you walk us through this? Right, yes. That's an interesting point because Again, in, in people understand in one uh, what people understand in currency management stops at the trade phase. That's it. All the work is done. Bye. I can relax. I here I can see the beach in front of me. I can go to the beach, and that's the end of my workflow. It's not the case. More work needs to be done, right? And it's going to involve um, so. Accounting and reporting and analytics. And accounting here has uh, some presents some difficulties. For example, accountants or accountants are trained to recognize on their own on on the books of the company a, a transaction the minute the corresponding invoice has been issued. Right, that's their job, and they must do that. However, especially in the case of forecasted exposures, perhaps you executed the corresponding power transaction before the moment that the invoice is recognized on company books. That can create confusion, right? Because accountants also must record the change in the value of that forward instrument. So you can have a perfectly normal situation in which you would have of origin gain from your commercial exposure that is not yet recognized because the corresponding invoice has not been issued. Yet, you have a foreign loss. Remember that a hedge is the offsetting transaction. One goes in one direction, the other in the other direction. So you could have conceivably a loss in your forward position, corresponding loss. Remember, they're going to cancel each other. One is not recognized while the other is. That creates uh, some confusion. Some CEOs are, they don't want to see that. They don't understand their sources of these changes. And so there are accounting uh, uh, principles that allow you to go hedge accounting, new accounting standards that allow companies to take away those foreign exchange gains and losses from the PL and put it temporarily in other accounts. But it requires, of course, lots of of hours of work of for accountants is time consuming. It's an expensive process. At least, what can be automated is the process of 
of compiling all that information, right? That can be also automated. Remember that we tend to have, we have, I can't well, the favorable view of automation. We always say that automation removes tasks, not jobs. <laughs> so there is a, a good example also to automate the, the process of compiling all that information. Now, when it comes to reporting and analytics, that's an, another matter. That's more for internal purposes to assess your performance, to assess how well your hedges are working, your KPIs or key. So uh, that is going performance to... Performance indicator. Yeah, that's performance it. Performance indicator. Thank you. Um, and that is going to evolve, of course, depending on the type of program, the distance mm -hmm. uh, to the hedge rate or the the, the PNL, the interest rate impact, all of that. You need, or in the ideal world, of course, we want a reporting system that allows us to that allow us to have all that information on a real-time basis, available on a real-time basis. What's your the impact of of hedges or what is the biggest source of risk or how well you are or performing and all of that needs to be uh, so in such a way that is easy to understand, uh, easy to read with data segregation capabilities. Perhaps it's very sensitive information that not everybody must see. And for that, also, it's an important aspect of, of currency management as well. One is that is, again, disregarded in mostly in, in textbooks, but in real life, believe me, it plays an important role. I think the last year's HSBC survey pointed out to pointed that about eighty percent of of CFOs would like to have at their disposal better analytics systems, and that's also made possible with currency management automation solution. Awesome! Just there is a concept that it took me a while uh, to wrap my head around, which is FX gain and loss. So, if I understand it correctly, when you hedge yourself against an FX risk. And if the movement between the two currencies indeed goes down like against you, but you hedged yourself, you make a gain because if you would have not hedged, you would have made a loss. And you actually need to declare that profits in your PL. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yes, absolutely. And the way to think about this is mostly that remember that one is going to cancel the other, right? So mm -hmm. To go back to the example of the U.S. producer with sales in, in euros, if the euro depreciates, right, and when those euros are going to be translated, because there is a time lapse between the moment the transaction is agreed and the moment it's going to be settled in cash. If the euro depreciates during that time lapse, the, the value of your commercial transaction is going to, to diminish. But, but the opposite is going to happen to the value of your forward transaction because you sold those euros in the first place, right? So, and you've got to get a, a lower exchange rate, which is going to create a foreign exchange gain offsetting that foreign exchange loss. Now, the thing to take into account here is that interest rates here play a role. Yes, that's one of the most um, technical and complicated parts, but if I could uh, summarize it in non-technical terms for your audience, it would be the following. There are 
course, currencies that are seen as safer, right, than others. <laughs> currencies that are seen as riskier than others. Example is, of course, the Swiss franc, widely seen as the most, uh, as the strongest uh, currency. Now, because of that low risk perception, interest rates in Swiss francs are very low, They're almost nil, right? And if you take interest rates on, say, an emerging market currency where risk is perceived as being higher, interest rates are going to be higher. And that creates a difference between the spot rate and the forward rate. And it's going to have an impact on those for net foreign exchange gains and losses that, that you mentioned, Guillaume. So, for example, in this case, if a Swiss-based company sells Mexican pesos on a forward basis because the Mexican peso is widely seen as riskier than Swiss franc. So the company is not going to get as much Swiss francs as it would in the spot market. That creates what we call a high cost of hedging. And yes, it's, and it's going to have a, an impact on those net foreign exchange gains and losses, right? Sometimes it's got to be, be in your favor. We call that favorable forward points. The forward points are the difference between the spot and the forward rate or unfavorable forward points. Thanks so much, Augustine, for taking us through the, the whole trade life cycle as well. Just to start bringing things to a close, could you take us through in a little bit more detail uh, what Cantox does and how they integrate into this whole process. You mentioned earlier about you know, where you sit with the FX and the, and the banks and the corporates. Could you give us an example of something that Cantox has implemented or done that sort of highlights what you guys do in that whole process? Yes, of course. Um, yes, the, the case here would be the one with, a, say, a French company called Fia Farmai. It's a, a mid-sized European pharmaceutical company in the specialty chemical area. Now, uh, they happen to, to sell in emerging markets, and that creates a relation with, with what you just said, right? The, if they're based in, in France and the euro is their functional currency in which they have their costs and in which they present their financial statements, it's a relatively strong currency uh, as opposed to uh, weaker currencies, say, in Brazil, maybe in South Africa and Mexico. So that creates a, what we call the high cost of hedging because remember, as those currencies are seen as riskier, when they hedge, they are going to get uh, paid less in the forward markets than in, in, in the spot rate. So that creates a cost. And the way to handle this, it's to put in place an automated program that allows them to delay the execution of those hedges, right? And that's done, that requires, so from their part to be able to gather all of their exposure to currency risk in so from subsidiaries, from headquarters, in a timely manner, in a complete manner. And this is done with the help of all of our solution, mostly Cantox Dynamic Hedging, which got to, to source that information from the, uh, from in this case, the Treasury management system of Tia Pharma 
and it's going to route that information to uh, to the um, the multi-dealer trading platforms in in a way that is already uh, uh, told. The, the information is gathered and processed in such a way that conditional orders are in place in order to to delay the execution of hedges to avoid that negative impact from interest rates. Remember that it sounds like just a one or two conditional orders, but it's going to take much more than that because these forwards uh, are executed, the exposure needs to be adjusted and it needs to be very precise and automated. Now, the process also, has, so the company has saved on those financial costs by delaying the execution of the hedges while still having their, their risk under active management, right? So they are, their exposure to the to currency risk under active management. So the, the risk is uh, taken care of even though hedge execution is delayed. They has also allowed the company to, to remove those time-consuming or resource-intensive and repetitive tasks uh, performed by, by, by members of, of the, the treasury team. And this again has allowed them to save on those, on those costs. We'd like to think uh, here in terms of, of risk, cost, and growth. And the growth aspect is where we lay more importance, right? Because think of what happens when you have all these processes in place, right? And we, you have most of them automated. And remember that we're keen to emphasize that automation removes tasks and not jobs. Why is that? Because now the, the treasury team of Teafama has more time at their disposal to devote to value-adding tasks, such as so scaling to more currency pairs if needed, right? To always be in a position to operate in the most convenient or most profitable currency, which they weren't, given the size of the treasury team, they were not able to do uh, before the Cantor solution. So they, they decided to stick to a core group of currencies and leave the other ways, the others uh, untouched. But now, all of those time-consuming and resource-intensive so aspects of manually executing those tasks, tasks are removed, and they have more time to devote to, to those uh, value-adding tasks, especially. Uh, so thinking in terms of, of growth, of expansion, we really want to emphasize that part because with risk under currency risk under management, you, want, you will be in a position to confidently well, tackle your markets and pocket sometimes those mock-ups that, that are charged by clients when they don't use their own currencies or you're able to remove also those FX markups when you buy and you end up also well, selling dearer and buying cheaper. So protecting and enhancing your profit margins. So all of this is is what we do, or, and all day long we analyze so the situations with companies. Remember that their pricing characteristics is maybe the, the one defining aspect of how we're going to, uh, to interact with them and what type of, of program we're going to propose. We, we like to get into the nitty-gritty details of integration and implementation. Um, what are the tools and systems you actually integrate with? You, you said you were like 
streamlining the process of this exposure gathering and processing and interfacing directly with the FX dealers. But on the corporate side, are you looking to the ERP then, where the AP and AR are um, populated and therefore the exposure gathered? Or the, is it the TMS? Where does Contox fit into this? Yes, absolutely. Look, this is, of course, a, a key point, right? The, well, it's got to depend on the different nature of of the of the exposure that you want to to manage. So most of the times, the forecasts are going to sit in company spreadsheets. The uh, firm sales orders are going to be at your um, disposal on ERP of the company. Perhaps these invoices are going to sit on the treasury management system. So you need what what is called software to software interfaces that allow the systems to communicate one another. And they call application programming interfaces. Absolutely keep the uh, piece of technology that is, of course, so powering all of our, of our solutions because that's what enables those systems to communicate with each other. It's very important when you have, for example, combinations of hedging programs. You want to as your budget and exposure, yes, perhaps about to undertake one big trade at the start and put conditional orders on the rest of the exposure. But you want to also hedge the incoming farm sales orders. That's a fantastic combination that allows you to so to hedge those farm sales orders as they uh, as they are as they materialize. And the minute they materialize, you adjust the rest of the exposure. So you end up almost now completely so forgetting about the risk of of overhedging but this must be uh, done with these technology solutions these application programming interfaces that are so vital but not only in hedging right they are very important in pricing as well right because when um the treasury team no, no i'm sorry the commercial team they require their fx rate remember they could be the Part of the forward rates, it could have markups per client segment and per currency pair. This information is transmitted to them also through application programming interfaces. And last but not least, it also is used in, in the post-trade phase, right? As you want to be able to have what we call traceability. You want to uh, have a system that allows you to trace all the individual small hedges back to their to the forecasted exposure, right? Because you need to make the necessary adjustments or you need to perform the accounting tasks that, that correspond. And again here, as in reporting, um, so those APIs uh, play a key role. It's definitely the most uh, the most important piece of technology that again allows systems to to communicate, to talk to each other in a way that makes the that seamless integration possible. Otherwise, of course, it wouldn't be possible. We would still have fragmented um, so um, process of different processes of automation in, in different phases of the workflow. Very clear. Um, obviously, to wrap up, I think this was an absolute masterclass in, in currency management overall and risk management. So thank you so, so much. I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of it. Um, if you could summarize just to, to finish the episode, uh, currency risk management in one key lesson for, for new treasurers out there or for people getting into this topic, uh, how would you 
just summarize into into one one key lesson. Right. I would use management. Yes. Then I would use two words. Embrace currencies. Yeah. That's that's our our key motto here. Beyond all the technicalities, application programming interfaces, spas and the forwards, the uh, the interest rate differentials, exposure gathering and and uh, trade execution, it doesn't uh, what it pales in comparison with the importance of the business side of of automation. Right, it's about growth, about trying to capture those growth opportunities to protect and enhance your competitive position to maybe get the chance to improve your profit margins to raise the sales to assets ratio and to make a contribution towards enhancing the value of the firm because ultimately that's the task of on the of treasury team so i would summarize in these two words embrace currencies with confidence if you're able to to manage the process in its entirety that's great and, and just to finish, uh, where can people go to know more about you, Cantox, CurrencyCast? Where should they go to find out more? Right. Um, the best way is to uh, to go through our, uh, to our website, so uh, cantox.com. And there you have you will find all the material or the the possibilities to to have a, um, a conversation with our currency management specialists and also to have access to Lots of different materials and course to cryptocurrency cast. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes below. Augustine, thank you so much. All right. Uh, thanks, you. It was really a pleasure to be uh, uh, with you, and we'll see you next time.